0: Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings.
1: Hi everyone, thanks for being here. You're in for a treat today because joining me on this episode will be a songwriter who will talk about the process of creating a song that earned him an Oscar nomination. I'm excited to learn more about his song and the experience of being at the Academy Awards. And we'll get to his interview in a few minutes. Right now, I want to first set the stage for all five of the songs that were nominated for 1975. If you were alive in 1975, it's likely that you didn't pay much attention to a moment that was one giant leap for mankind, but not as publicized as the moon landing. Bill Gates started the company Microsoft in his Albuquerque, New Mexico garage that year. He would become the richest man in the world about 20 years later and Teamsters Union president Jimmy Hoffa was reported missing, and to this date, his body has never been recovered. Things were comparably quiet in Hollywood in 1975, though filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and Robert Altman were looking to shake up the industry. Things have been pretty stagnant in the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences since around 1959, at least as far as eligibility for the original song category was concerned. But that all changed for the awards recognizing films released in 1975, and not just a few words here and there. We had wholesale changes, clarifications, and many revisions, many of which remained part of the rules for the next 40 years. One of the biggest changes was finally calling the award Best Original Song instead of just "Song." The Academy seemed to be making these changes in response to the quickly evolving landscape of movie songs. Another era was starting, in which those who did not normally work in the film business were asked to write music for the movies. Quincy Jones was one of the earliest examples, but it was Isaac Hayes who made the trend stick with his work on Shaft in 1971. Just as the Tin Pan Alley songwriters were replaced by film composers in the early 1950s, Those film composers, such as Henry Mancini and Dimitri Tiomkin, were being replaced by singers who could also write their own songs. One of the main changes in the eligibility rules involved the process to make a song eligible for Academy Award consideration. In the first four years of the award, songwriters nominated their own work as well as songs that two other colleagues had written. For the next eight years, a movie studio earned an automatic nomination for the song its music department felt was the best of the year. From 1946 to 1974, the Academy prepared a list of eligible songs for each year after vetting the qualifications of the song and the songwriters. The music branch then nominated the top 10 songs of the year and whittled that down to the final five nominees. Apparently, the Academy was tired of doing all the work. Beginning in 1975, it was up to the songwriters themselves to submit their songs for consideration by completing an entry form that verified the song and the person or persons responsible for it. The songwriters also had to submit the lead sheet for the song, which is the musical notation and lyrics for a particular song. It's the basic skeleton of the song, which the Academy would keep for its records. If a songwriter didn't submit the paperwork by December 1st, the song couldn't be nominated, even if it were the best song of the year by a country mile. The Academy didn't announce this change in its seasonal newsletter or in its annual reports. If you were a songwriter who didn't bother to read any of the Academy rulebook for 1975, you were not going to be in the running that year because you didn't know the new changes but it seemed that many songwriters did their homework and knew to submit paperwork to the Academy. Perhaps a special mailing was sent out to Academy members, and that filtered out to Hollywood in general. One film that had multiple writers of original songs submitting pages upon pages of entry forms was Robert Altman's Nashville. In the five years since his Oscar-nominated MASH made him a notable director, Altman made more movies that weren't extremely popular at the time, but have become cult favorites. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images, and The Long Goodbye are just three of the six Robert Altman movies made before the one that would become his masterpiece, Nashville. Before we go any further, I want to remind you, in case you forgot, that there will be some big plot spoilers revealed here. The movie Nashville follows about two dozen people around Nashville leading up to a political rally for a presidential candidate. Since the movie was about the music industry, Altman asked many of the actors to write songs that they would sing in the film. This was highly unusual, but added authenticity to the characters. Ronnie Blakely, Keith Carradine, and Karen Black were three principal songwriters for Nashville, writing a total of eight original songs. Given the popularity of the film at the time, including a box office take of $6 million, it's surprising that only one of the songs managed to snag an Oscar nomination. That was the song I'm Easy, written and performed by Keith Carradine. In the movie, Carradine plays Tom, a member of a singing trio, and when he arrives in Nashville for a recording session, he decides he wants to venture into a solo career. Along the way, he has sex with numerous women. He keeps calling Lily Tomlin's Linnea, a gospel singer who Tom met a couple of weeks earlier, but she refuses to see him again until he invites her to a club where he'll be singing. At the club, he grabs a guitar and sings I'm Easy. It's a song about being so much in love that he's willing to play the games that his lover plays. Of all the songs in Nashville, this is the quietest one played at a lounge where three of the women he has slept with are in the audience. Linnea is sitting in the back where she thinks she won't be seen. All of the women think Carradine is singing to them, but the camera lingers on Tomlin the most through the song, and Carradine seems to be looking in her direction as he sings. Even the other women look around the room to try and figure out who he's looking at.
0: I'm going to play something that, uh... I wrote just recently, and came here to record. Right. I'm going to dedicate this to someone kind of special who just might be here tonight. This is a song called I'm Easy. It's not my way to love you just when no one's looking. It's not my way to take your hand if I'm not sure It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me When it's a love you won't be needing you're not free Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing If you won't take the things you make me want to give I never cared too much for games, and this one's driving me insane. You're not half as free to wander as you claim. But I'm easy. Yeah, I'm easy. Give the word, I'll play a game. So that's how it ought to be, because I'm easy. don't lead me on if there's nowhere for you to take me if loving you would have to be a sometime thing i can't put bars on my insides my love is something i can't hide it still hurts when i recall the times i've tried but i'm easy yeah i'm easy Take my hand and pull me down I won't put up any fight Because I'm easy Don't do me favor, Let me watch you from a distance Cause when you're near I find it hard to keep my head And when your eyes throw light at mine It's enough to change my mind Make me leave my cautious words and ways behind That's why I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Say you want me, I'll come running Without taking time to think Because I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Take my hand and pull me down I won't put up any fight Because I'm easy yeah, I'm easy. Give the word, I'll play your game. Oh, so that's how it ought to be,
1: because I'm easy. I'm so happy that Keith Carradine is joining me now on the Best Song Podcast to talk about the road that I'm Easy took to its Oscar nomination. Mr. Carradine, it's an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you today on the Best Song Podcast. My pleasure to join you. Thanks for asking, Jeff. So we're talking in fall 2023, which means it's been 48 years since Nashville was in theaters. When was the last time you saw the movie? Oh, my. Um, I think the last time I saw a full
2: screening of it was at the, uh, I believe it was at the 25-year anniversary. Okay. Now There was a screening at the Academy. And uh, a lot of us went and, um, you know, Bob was still with us. And a lot of the Nashville family were still, you know, around and and we all went and watched the movie. And I think uh, and then I think some of us actually went over to Bob and Catherine's house, uh, their home in, in, in Malibu afterwards. And, uh, you know, sort of had a, a follow up uh, gathering. Uh, it was it was fun to see everybody. It was great to see it um, screened, you know, in that theater. I mean, cause it's state of the art and, uh, and you know, everything about it was, uh, there was the best possible way to look at a, at a, a movie on the big screen, technically speaking. And it was a, and, and it was a full house, you know, it was a, a big audience that came to see the movie and, uh, and, uh,
1: celebrate, uh, you know, Bob's achievement. Absolutely. How did it, how did the movie hold up for you 25 years later? better probably a Um, different perspective on it well i i I knew when
2: we were doing it that we were doing something special uh i knew we were doing something really good um i didn't realize you know and then and then there were people who talked about the film uh, the critics who who praised it and uh and uh, uh and and referred to it as a as a as a masterwork um and in seeing it 25 years later, especially at that at that theater that night, uh, I I was uh, absolutely gobsmacked at at what what an achievement it was that that Altman had had accomplished there. You know, that movie Joan Tewksbury's screenplay, um, it was just a, a monumental achievement, an absolute masterwork.
1: Yeah. So that was the third movie that you had done with Robert Altman. Yes. And- uh when you first learned that he was going to be doing it, what did you think about the concept and and not only that but the character that you were going to play Tom Frank
2: well you know that, that that all of that sort of came around uh 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 in, in, in different timings uh, the fact is that Joan Tewksbury while we were she had written the screenplay for Thieves like us which we were filming in Mississippi and that was in the summer of I believe the summer of 73 um and Joan was making uh, regular trips up to Nashville while we were down there filming "Thieves Like Us." Um, she was making regular trips to Nashville and interviewing people and gathering data, information, and for this concept of this film that she and Bob were talking about doing. So even back then, it was a conversation that they were having and that Bob was having, and that you know, um, uh, uh, you know, and 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 I was I was. Playing a lot of music at the time, I was, you know, I had done a lot of songwriting already, and and uh, and I had my guitar with me, and Bob would have parties, and I would I would play my guitar and sing songs that I'd written, and and Joan and Bob were paying attention to that, and so I know that they were, um, you know, uh, entertaining the idea of what this film was going to be, and obviously that I would be have some part in it. Um, but I think that that might have been part of the germination of Bob's concept of of having a, a lot of actors come in, who are also musicians and songwriters in their own right, and having them all contribute um, in the making of the film with with their, with the songs they'd written, and uh, so that had a lot to do with what that film became. In terms of which role I was to play, um, I think the original concept was that there was this trio. And uh, it was uh, Bill and Mary and Tom, they were called. And, uh, and uh, it was going to be me and Gary Busey and Christina Rains. And uh, then Gary got an offer for a, a television pilot um, called uh, Texas Wheelers, uh, and it was going to star Jack Elam and Gary Busey. So Gary bowed out of the Nashville project to do the pilot uh, for for television with Jack Elam. And when Gary dropped out, the role that Bob had originally envisioned Gary playing, he decided he wanted me to play. Hmm. So that's when I moved into that role of of Tom Frank. And um, <clears throat> and uh, and I call and I told Bob about my dear friend Alan Nichols, with whom I had appeared in the Broadway cast of Hair back in 1969-70. And Alan and I were great friends. And Alan's a wonderful songwriter and a singer in his own right and performer and a terrific actor. And I said, uh, you might want to meet Alan. Bob said, have him come out. Uh, Alan came out to Los Angeles. So he put Alan into the role that I was originally supposed to play. And so then it was Bill and Mary and Tom was me and Christina Raines and, and, uh, and Alan Nichols. But, uh, but Gary did still, he still was a contributor to the film because one of the songs that we perform as that group at the exit in one of them was, is, is Gary's song since you've gone. That was a song that Gary Busey wrote. So, uh, and, uh, Christina sings the lead vocal on that. And, uh, and then of course, uh, that's followed up with me sitting down and, and doing I'm easy at the yeah. exit in.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about I'm easy here. So is it true that it was already written in whole or in part before you got involved with Nashville? I did
2: write the song, yeah. It
1: was the song that
2: I had written uh, actually when I was 19 years
1: old, yeah. Okay. So how much of the song that you originally wrote is what we hear in Nashville? All of it. All of it. So really no changes at all. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Was it an easy song to write? Well, you know, uh, as I recall when I wrote it, uh, uh,
2: um, 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 it was actually written for, for Shelley Plimpton um uh, with whom i was performing in hair uh, at the time and uh and uh it was basically a, a song to her so uh um uh, i seem to remember it taking me about i don't know a little under an hour to write oh wow i mean some of the some songs can, you know just they just kind of spill out and some of them are harder work depending on what the, what it is that you're trying to do but that one you know, I've, I've done a lot of songwriting and uh, and and some of them are quick and some of them uh, take a while.
1: Yeah, I think Sammy Khan had said that the only the, the best songs really should take about an hour. Otherwise, they're probably not going to be very good anyway.
2: If you have to work too hard on them, then then maybe you know, something is being forced and maybe there's, if there's something about it that isn't natural and it doesn't flow. So, yeah, I would I would listen to the great Sammy Khan in that regard. I mean, <laughs>
1: he's the man. Yeah, absolutely so in creating this song when you were 19 years old were you how did it come was the music first or were you thinking about the the lyrics that you wanted to convey uh, that was sort of simultaneous
2: it was a simultaneous thing you know the lyrics and the, and the music sort of happened at the same time as i recall
1: what did robert altman think when he first heard i'm easy
2: uh, well, I mean, he liked it. I mean, uh, there are, uh, I had, uh, uh, you know, ev- everybody came to that movie with songs that they'd written, uh, you know, people who were performing songs in the film, either wrote a song for the film or came with material that they'd written in before. And, um, I had three songs, you know, that I'd written that were, that were in the film. I'm easy. And, uh, it don't worry me. And, uh, honey, won't you let me be your friend, which is just playing, uh, on a recording when I'm, when I'm, I think it's when I'm in bed with uh, Christina, um, uh, in my hotel room. Um, so, uh, and Bob, you know, he, he knew that I was, that I had written a lot of songs because he heard them, uh, you know, when I was playing them at his house in, in Mississippi. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that, uh, it's, it's funny because it don't worry me. I'd actually written for, uh, the movie that I did with Lee Marvin called Emperor of the North. Um, that's, it's really a hobo song. Um, yeah, absolutely yes. if you listen to the lyric uh, if you listen to the lyric it's 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 about uh, it's a depression song you know the price of bread may worry some but it don't worry me tax relief may never come but it don't worry me economy's depressed not me my spirits you know anyhow so so that's uh but but the way Bob used it in the film was you know and that that was kind of Bob's genius and the way he used I'm easy as well you know because that's a straight ahead love song and yet uh, the way he presents it in the film, um, um uh, there's 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 more than a, there's more than a little cynicism to Bob's um, uh, point of view and uh, and, uh, I think juxtaposing something that was basically a, a really sincere love song, juxtaposing that with the idea that uh, it's being sung by this this guy who is kind of a womanizer, you know, um, it was it was, it was very effective.
1: Absolutely. I think the editing of that scene where you're performing the song really kind of carries that weight that you're saying, because I think if he's, if we just see him performing it on stage, yes, it's just a love song to these women that are in the audience, but the way it's edited, it, it, you know, you could see the effect it has on Lily Tomlin. You could see the effect, what, what Tom is trying to actually do with the song. Uh, How did, how did the conversations with you and Bob come about you, the way you were actually performing it on, on stage? and, and the you know what
2: it bob bob is
1: it bob, bob does not he
2: doesn't manipulate uh, um in a one on one way um uh, he 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 and he often said that uh, you know 85 90% of the of, of uh, making the movie is is casting and and getting the right person to play the right role and uh and in the case of me pre- performing musically um you know, he just, uh, they, they set up the, they had a, you know, they had an eight track uh, recording studio outside in a, a semi truck and everything was plugged in. So it was all done live. And, uh, and uh, you know, in terms of uh, he just put the camera he wanted it to be and, and, uh, and just had us perform. And he didn't say perform it in any specific way. You know, he just said, sing the song, you know, because he trusted that however we did that and however anybody did it in any, any of their musical moments in the film, it was going to be in character, and uh, and it would uh, it would serve the movie.
1: How many times did you have to sing that song? How many takes did it take? Uh, you know what? I don't remember specifically. Um,
2: you know, we probably did it two or three times all the way through. I'm guessing.
1: You know. Okay. That, that's a very economic because most times it's you know 10, 12 takes of it. Oh no no no, no, no. Bob was never a, a multiple take person.
2: I mean, uh, you know you, you knew with him then and he knew you know you, you know, you're gonna get it in the first three takes and usually in the first one and you have a couple more for insurance, but usually the first take is is the one that has the most magic to it.
1: Another song that Carradine wrote for the movie carries more weight in the film than I'm easy. It's the song "It Don't Worry Me," which a crowd of people sing after an assassination attempt at the end of the movie. As the gunmen's victims are being carried away, Barbara Harris's character is handed a microphone, and she starts singing to keep the crowd's spirits high. It
3: don't Martha, Martha. It don't what happened? Can you please tell me what happened? Life is sweet. Just asking about me. Life may be warm. If anybody down here sweet,
1: can help us. But
3: it don't worry me. Come on, everybody, sing. It don't worry me. It don't worry me. Don't worry me. You may say, Don't worry me, don't worry me. Don't worry me. You may I'm free, it's not gonna worry me. I
4: spread me every
3: song. It don't worry. Acts believe me never come. It don't worry me. It cut me depressed come on me. My spirit's high can on, be. On, you may say I ain't free. It don't worry me. Oh it don't worry me. It don't
1: So a few months after Nashville comes out everybody the critics are praising it everybody's going to see it big box office success and then the awards attention comes. What did you think about I'm easy getting the awards attention and not it don't worry me. Well,
2: um it don't worry me had a different moment in the in in the film. Um and I mean it certainly had its own catchiness to it in terms of being you know, having a, 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 good melody and, and a memorable refrain. Um, uh, but for whatever reason, um, I'm easy, uh, was, uh, was the one that, uh, that got through to people. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's that, that, that's a funny, it's whatever penetrates and, and I have no explanation for that. I'm too close to it. It's a song that I wrote and and I've sung and and it had the success that it did. But in terms of analyzing why, you have to ask smarter people than I to, <laughs> to give you the answer to that question. But for whatever reason, that song penetrated and uh, it, it, people felt it when they heard it. And uh, and I think that that uh, that I think that probably has more
1: to do with uh, its recognition than anything. The Nashville soundtrack was a very successful release in fall 1975, featuring all of the original songs from the film. It Don't Worry Me is played twice on the album, first by Carradine and then at the end of the album by Barbara Harris. But that didn't help the song's chances, with only one original song out of 12 getting noticed by the Academy's music branch. In 1972, John Kander and Fred Ebb were in line to receive their first Oscar nominations for writing new songs for the film adaptation of Cabaret, but neither Money Money nor Mine Hair were singled out among the ten nominations that Cabaret received. Kander and Ebb had been a theatrical songwriting duo since 1965 when they wrote songs for a show called Flora the Red Menace. That show is notable as Liza Minnelli's stage debut, and the first time she would sing songs from Candor and Ebb. Though Minnelli didn't star in the stage version of Cabaret in 1966, she did get to sing Candor and Ebb songs in the 1972 film version and win an Oscar for it. After Minnelli helped make Cabaret a hit in 1972, Candor and Ebb were asked to write three new songs for the TV special Liza with a Z. And that cemented the partnership with Minnelli that would last nearly a decade. Back in 1963, Barbara Streisand sang the Candor and Ebb song, I Don't Care Much, and turned it into a hit off her second album. When Streisand and producer Ray Stark were looking for songwriters to give them original tunes for the sequel to Funny Girl, they turned to Candor and Ebb, who at the time of their hiring were one year removed from the successful Cabaret film. Their assignment was to write six songs for the film, two of which were done as stage performances. The others were actual musical songs, performed away from the stage by either Streisand or co-star James Caan in his first musical. Each of the songs were to encapsulate the personality of the real Fanny Brice while also playing to Streisand's singing strengths. Funny Lady is being famous for being a film that Streisand didn't want to make, but was compelled to do anyway. When she signed on to do the film version of Funny Girl, she signed a contract to do three more movies for Stark. One of them was The Way We Were, and that turned out alright. But the last one in her contract was Funny Lady. Streisand didn't think there was much to Fanny Bryce's story after she left Nikki Arnstein at the end of Funny Girl. And in a way, she was right. The movie's plot, which focuses on her working relationship and eventual romantic relationship with Billy Rose, isn't as compelling as Funny Girl. In a way, it's almost the same movie. Fanny is a hit on stage, she falls in love, then loses her man, but maintains her dignity. But the film shines when Streisand sings, and she does it 12 times. The song that got the Oscar nomination from Funny Lady was How Lucky Can You Get? It comes about an hour into the film, around the time that musical pictures of the 1940s and 1950s would have had an intermission. Fanny had just reunited with Nicky Arnstein in her dressing room after a show, and finds out that he's married. Any hope of a reconciliation goes right out of the window, and Fanny decides to stay in her dressing room while her friends leave. She puts on a record, and the peppy swing tune, How Lucky Can You Get?, plays. On the record, Fanny is happy to have all the material things in life, including money and jewels, and she also has a man she adores. Fanny prepares to leave her dressing room as the song ends and joins in with some humming and then a few of the words. Though Fanny on the record is happy, Fanny in the dressing room sings with bitterness. The song on the record ends and Fanny is standing at the stage door about to sing How Lucky Can You Get, retaining the bitterness she had earlier. Dressed in a slinky black gown designed by Bob Mackie, Streisand belts out the song with lots of irony. Yeah, she's rich and is part of a hit show, but it's all for nothing without the man she loves. She's lucky on the outside, but anything but on the inside.
5: Wow, how lucky can you get?
6: Ado-de-o, you see her diamonds are gleam. Alone, her life is a dream.
5: Wrap it up and charge it, that's my favorite phrase. Mm-hmm. How lucky can you get?
6: When I see the show for I'll give them a raise. Mm-hmm. How
5: lucky can you get? Mm-hmm. Weekends in the country with a Baron of course. Faster's pet horse! Making merry music with the one that I love! a do it! we Wow! You you Can you get
6: the 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 the
5: my lips. Money in my pocket, right at my fingertips. Wrap it up and charge it, that's my favorite phrase. How lucky when I see the show, I think I'll give them a raise. How lucky life's a bed of roses,
1: Streisand sang the second part of the song completely live, which she had not really done in Funny Girl. That has to be one of the main reasons why the song got the Oscar nomination. You can feel the actual sarcasm coming from Streisand in the moment, and it doesn't sound like it was recorded months earlier. Critics blasted the film, calling it too long and too boring. But audiences ate it up, and the movie made about $20 million in the United States. The soundtrack sold more than a million copies and was number six on the Billboard album charts in summer 1975. There was no love for Streisand this time around at the Oscars, though Funny Lady managed four other nominations besides Best Original Song. Another popular movie in 1975 was The Other Side of the Mountain, based on the true story of skier Jill Kinmont, the accident that left her paralyzed, and the new chapter she wrote for her life after her recovery. The story involves a romance with a man named Dick, who helps boost her spirits and give her the will to live when she was at her lowest point in the hospital. The posters for The Other Side of the Mountain mentioned the 1970 movie Love Story, hoping to get that movie's followers to buy tickets. And it worked, because The Other Side of the Mountain made $18 million in the United States after its November 1975 release, and $34 million when worldwide ticket sales were added in. But back to the other side of the mountain. The movie does pull on the heartstrings, and Bo Bridges gives a very good performance as Dick. The movie's finale features a marriage proposal that Jill accepts by telephone, and Dick plans to fly his plane to her and begins plans for their lives together. But his plane crashes, and Jill is heartbroken. Many years later, She remembers the impact Dick made on her life, and as she's on a road with the Native American children she is teaching, we hear the Oscar nominated song, Richard's Window. Though he's never called Richard in the movie, we're glad the songwriters realized that a song called Dick's Window is not gonna resonate as well. After a somewhat unrelated first verse, the song pays tribute to Dick's friendship, even though it didn't last long. With his help, Jill is able to see the world through his eyes, or in the case of this song, through his window. (laughs) ¶¶ The woman singing Richard's Window was just starting to become a very big celebrity. Her name is Olivia Newton-John, and she had released many albums in the early 1970s that were successful in Great Britain and the United States. Two of them, If You Love Me, Let Me Know and Have You Never Been Mellow, were number one albums in the United States, setting a Guinness World Record for the shortest span between number one albums for a female singer until Taylor Swift took the record in 2020. Her song, I Honestly Love You, was a major worldwide success in 1974, and when Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel were looking for someone to sing their song Richard Window," Olivia Newton-John was an easy choice. This was the first Oscar nomination for composer Charles Fox and lyricist Norman Gimbel, who started their partnership in the early 1970s, their first major song together was recorded by Laurie Lieberman, called "Killing Me Softly with His Song," a tune that Lieberman helped to write based on an experience she had at a concert. The song was a huge hit in nineteen seventy three when Roberta Flack recorded it; by this time, though, Fox and Gibble had removed Lieberman as a credited songwriter, which meant she wouldn't get any royalties from Flack's recording nor would she be able to accept the Grammy for Song of the Year in 1974. After that win, Gary Marshall asked the songwriters to come up with a title song for his new TV show, Happy Days, though it would only play over the end credits. Marshall wanted Rock Around the Clock to play at the start of the show, which it did until Season 3, when Happy Days became the official theme song and one of the top TV theme songs of all time. Charles Fox was mostly a film composer, and when he was hired to write the score for The Other Side of the Mountain, he brought along Norman Gimbel, who had been associated with an Oscar-nominated song many years earlier. Gimbel wrote English lyrics to the French song I Will Wait For You from the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, but since the English version did not play in the film, Gimbel didn't seem to be eligible for the Academy Award nomination. But as I mentioned in that episode, Gimble had his name retroactively added as a nominee for I Will Wait For You because he wrote the lyrics in the English version, which was allowed under Academy rules in 1964. Though Fox and Gimble were popular songwriters, and though Olivia Newton-John was a big star, Richard's Window was never recorded as a single. But with The Other Side of the Mountain making a lot of money, it was very likely that the music branch paid enough attention to Richard's Window even though one critic called it a drooling pop song, whatever that means. Love songs were all the rage in 1975, apparently, with three of them making the Oscar nominations list. The next one to earn a nomination is called Now That We're In Love, from a comedy called Whiffs. I use the word comedy lightly, as did pretty much everyone involved with the film after it was released. Elliot Gould said it was his least favorite performance. Writer Malcolm Marmerstein had issues with director Ted Post. And Gould's insistence that his girlfriend Jennifer O'Neill play the female lead role wrecked the film with her lifeless acting. Gould and O'Neill broke up during filming, which makes watching their love scenes together more uncomfortable. The movie was made by Brute Productions, the same company that made A Touch of Class in 1973. After that movie earned Glinda Jackson an Academy Award for Best Actress and a nomination for the song All That Love Went to Waste, Brute Productions CEO George Barry got dizzy on his success. Running the Fabergé Brute Fragrance Company was now a second job to his movie-making aspirations. Barry decided to step up to producing, and his first project was Wiffs about two men who are guinea pigs in the Army's Chemical Weapons Testing Division and later used their knowledge to rob banks. And, as producer, Barry wanted a piece of the songwriting pie as well. He got his choice of people to write two songs for the film and naturally hired himself as composer, with Sammy Kahn returning to the fray for the lyrics. Kahn had been a consultant for Brute Productions since working on the songs for A Touch of Class, and always thought it was a good side gig. I'm sure I write songs better than I consult, Khan wrote in his autobiography, but it's a fair and a working relationship. One I like and value, end quote. Khan's autobiography was published in 1974 as Whiffs was in pre-production. So there are no quotes from Khan about his experience writing the nominated song, now that we're in love, for a Disjointed Comedy. The song does the bare minimum to qualify for Academy Awards consideration. We hear it twice, barely, over the loudspeaker at the Army base in Utah where Elliot Gould's character Dudley is going to get his regular checkups after he's medically discharged from service. Playing it during these moments in the film doesn't help convey the love story between Gould and O'Neill's characters, and we are barely able to understand the lyrics. If I wasn't strictly paying attention to where the song appeared in the film, I might have thought the song was a throwaway tune that the songwriters made with little regard for its placement in the movie. And maybe that was true. The gist of the song is that while two people are experiencing love, every day is Valentine's Day. And when she touches his hand, it's like being at Disneyland.
7: Now that we're in love, the world's a lovelier place Now that we're in love, it has a smile on its face Every night is New Each day is Valentine's Day I know this you won't believe You sigh and violins play Now that you're the one Who else could matter to me Now that you're the one Whoever else could there be All you do
1: is touch my
7: hand Suddenly it's wonderland shangri Eden Yes, heaven and paradise Now that we're in love You with me And I with you Now that we're in love It's Wonderland, Shangri-La, Eden, yes, Heaven, and Paradise too. Now that we're in love, I can't I with you.
1: Steve Lawrence performs the song in his best Frank Sinatra impression. Sinatra had been the go-to singer for Sammy Kahn for many years, but Sinatra and Kahn parted ways almost a decade earlier, leaving Kahn to find someone who can convey the emotion of the song needed. This was Lawrence's second time performing an Oscar-nominated song. The last one he did was The Facts of Life back in 1960. In the 15 years between those two songs, Steve Lawrence started his own variety television show that lasted two months and performed in two Broadway musicals. Getting the chance to record Now That We're In Love could have boosted his career a bit, but the commercial recording failed to resonate with the public. The fifth nominee had a very rocky journey to its place in Academy history. In 1975, Diana Ross returned to the big screen three years after her film debut playing Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. This time, she was taking the route that Barbara Streisand took in The Way We Were, playing a non-singing role, but performing a song in the opening credits. That song is called Do You Know Where You're Going To from the movie Mahogany, and she made it a big hit in the fall of 1975. The song is steeped in controversy because songwriters Michael Masser and Jerry Goffin wrote the song in 1973 as a standalone single for Motown singer Thelma Houston. She recorded the song but Motown never released it. When Motown founder Barry Gordy took over the directing duties for Mahogany after Oscar-winning director Tony Richardson was fired, Gordy began looking for a song in the vein of The Way We Were for Ross to sing for the film. He found it in Do You Know We are Going To and used his influence as Motown chief to keep Thelma Houston's record from being released before Diana Ross had a chance to perform it. Masser and Goffin made a major overhaul to the song changing the music slightly and writing new lyrics for the verses that made it more relevant to the movie. In that sense, the song remained eligible for the Oscar because Diana Ross's version was very different from Houston's version, at least enough to be considered a fairly new composition. But as I will tell you later, the controversy did not end there. The movie has Diana Ross playing a wannabe fashion designer. The song highlights the aspirations everyone has of achieving their dreams and what success looks like once it's achieved. song hit number 1 in late January 1976, the perfect time to be popular. That's when nomination voting takes place by academy members. But this year, the nomination process for the three music awards was going to be much different. Instead of letting the entire music branch whittle the songs and scores down to 10 preliminary nominees, the music branch picked 17 of its 200 members to be part of a screening committee and an executive committee, which would, under the new rules, quote, "consider eligibility and make recommendations regarding classification and artistic qualification." End quote. The interpretation of that didn't sound like these two committees would be the sole source of reducing the list of eligible music for voting, but that's what they did, and in early January, nineteen seventy six the music branch announced a smaller list of songs and scores that the entire branch would vote on for the final five nominees. The press got this list of 11 songs and put their poison pens to work when they noticed that Do You Know Where You're Going To was not one of the 11. In an editorial, the Hollywood Reporter called it a quote, completely antiquated and biased structure of the music branch, whose executive committee seems to be run like a restricted private club, end quote. Reading between the lines, the Hollywood Reporter insinuated that the music branch didn't consider the song because a black woman sang it, even though the songwriters were white. That editorial seemingly was the impetus for the Academy's Board of Governors to order that this list be thrown out and disbanded the committees that created the list the entire music branch went back to making a list of the top ten songs that would be reduced to five in the final vote tally. Do You Know Where You're Going To made that top ten list and eventually made Michael Masser and Jerry Goffin first-time Oscar nominees. Masser had been a songwriter for Motown for many years and brought in Goffin to help him write Do You Know Where You're Going To. Before that, Masser was responsible for Diana Ross's number one hit Touch Me in the Morning, in 1973. Goffin married singer Carole King in 1959, and in addition to creating a family together, they created a string of hits, including Will You Love Me Tomorrow and Aretha Franklin's signature song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. When Do You Know Where You're Going To hit number one, it gave Jerry Goffin his fifth Billboard number one song in 15 years. Two weeks before the Oscar nominations were announced, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association handed out the Golden Globes. The five-song nominees for the Golden Globes was almost identical to the Oscar nominees. Do You Know Where You're Going To was the song that was left off the Golden Globes list, possibly due to the issue with it being recorded two years earlier and not completely original to the film? But who knows? In its place at the Golden Globes was My Little Friend, from the movie Paper Tiger. Sammy Kahn wrote that song with the film's composer Roy Budd about the relationship between David Niven's British tutor and the son of an ambassador to a fictional Asian country. <laughs> Gave Sammy Kahn two Golden Globe nominations in one year, but he won neither of them. Keith Carradine took the Golden Globe for I'm Easy on January 24, 1976, putting him at the top of the odds to win the Oscar. What was it like that night, winning that award, especially given you know that this was all very new to you, this whole concept of awards? Yeah, it, it was,
2: I mean, it was, it was thrilling, of course. And, and uh, uh, you know, and I performed it at the Golden Globes ceremony and, uh, and uh, having it win the award was, uh, it was certainly unexpected. You know, uh, I, it was, it was quite thrilling, you know, and uh, from that group, uh, you know, the Foreign Press Association and, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a very distinctive uh, group in its own right. Um, So that was, you know, that was the beginning of, you know, some serious recognition. And I I believe that the soundtrack uh, got a Grammy nomination as well. The entire, the entire score, I think, got a Grammy nomination. I remember there, I remember those of us who were, you know, contributors to that, uh, going to that ceremony as well, going to the Grammys. And We did not win, of course, but we, but we did get nominated. Um, and then, of course, the Oscars, I, I thought I was the longest shot on the planet. You know, I did. There, there was I, there was no way I was I was up against Barry Gordy in the Motown machine, man. I was, up against uh, you know, uh, uh, the theme from Mahogany. I thought, you know, I mean, I was just there to, you know. Be at the Academy Awards, which I'd never been to, and uh, and then I of course because I was nominated, I, I performed the song there. Um, that was um, exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time. I mean, it was it was it was quite a ride, I have to say.
1: What are your memories of the day that you learned that I'm Easy was nominated for an Oscar?
2: I'm trying to, I think, trying to remember what I think I was living in I was living in Topanga. I know that. And I think I might have got the phone call in the morning. I think my agent might have called me. Somebody called me and said, uh, your song got nominated, you know. it was the morning the nominations came out. And I was, I was, uh, what year was that? I was, uh, I was 25 years old, you know. And, uh, you know, when, when you're that age, it, it, everything is possible. It was a, it was quite, quite an extraordinary
1: time. The Academy Award telecast on March 29th, 1976, was significant in that it began ABC's current run as the broadcast channel for the Oscars in the United States. The show was on at the same time as the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship, which presenter Elliot Gould noted when presenting the Oscar for film editing. He gave the final score for the game before the winning editor was named, saying Indiana 86-68 before Verna Fields won her Oscar for Jaws. With three popular female songwriters originating three of the original song nominees, the press was anxious to know if Diana Ross, Olivia Newton-John, and Barbara Streisand would sing their songs on the show. Streisand was notorious for her stage fright and declined the invitation. Diana Ross was in Amsterdam at the time and agreed to a live quote-unquote performance of the song, which was done at 4 a.m. there. I put performance in quotes because she lip-synced the song while riding in a horse-drawn carriage. But the visuals were probably enough to entrance the TV audience. It probably didn't feel the same way in the audience of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, where they watched the performance on monitors. Olivia Newton-John didn't get to sing Richard's Window on the show. That job went to Kelly Garrett, who was starring in a musical on Broadway at the same time. Steve Lawrence and Keith Carradine were the other two original song performers and they got to sing at the Oscars. So you're 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 in, sitting at the Academy Awards the original song category comes up pretty late in the show so you've got quite a while to kind of sit there are the nerves building as it gets closer well to... most of my
2: nerves were about performing the thing you know and once sure. I had done that uh I felt like okay well I I got that I did that <laughs> And, uh, you know, and it was it was uh, intense because I, I, it was just me and my guitar. You know, I had no backup band or anything. It, I just sat and played the song um, basically the same way I had performed it on film uh, in the movie, which is what the, you know, uh, Howard Koch, who was producing the Oscars, that's what he wanted me to do, you know. And, uh, you know, it was scary, man, because you you have you have nothing to hide behind. You know, it's just uh you don't have a hot band behind you to make you look better or sound better. You know, it was just me and my guitar singing that song, and uh, that was it was uh, it was a moment.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely was not you know a few dozen people at the easy end. No, though he seemed to be out of favor with the Academy for his songwriting, Burt Bacharach was asked to announce the winner of the original song award, probably because his wife Angie Dickinson would garner some easy ratings. And when the two of them announced that Keith Carradine was the winner for writing, I'm easy, the audience gave him a lengthy ovation. All right. So you, you win the Oscar for original song. What were your emotions when you heard your name called?
2: I I, I was, I was pretty stunned. Um, I hadn't really anticipated winning. Um, and so I had not actually thought about it or prepared a speech or anything. So, uh, um, you know, I just said, what came to me when I got up there, you know, I thought I did okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. You didn't stutter or anything. <laughs> yeah. It, mu- it must've been an incredible thing to have your father in the audience to see that happen. That was too. wonderful. And he'd never been to the Oscars and
2: he'd never been nominated for an Oscar himself. And yet he was in some of the greatest films ever made, you know, um, and, uh, and his body of work, uh, you know, it stands the test of time. Um, he gave some extraordinary performances over the course of his career. But he'd never been to the Oscars, and he'd uh, he'd never had cause to go. He'd never had reason to go. He was never nominated, and uh, and he wasn't part of sort of the Hollywood that uh, is always there, regardless of whether they've been nominated or not. And that was never who my dad was. You know, um, he felt that that was something that uh, well, if you have not, if you're if you're nominated, then you have a reason to go, and, and and you know otherwise, or if they want you to come and present an award or something like that. You know, so that was it was a thrill to have him. Along.
1: With the win, Keith Garadine took over the title as the youngest winner of the original song Oscar at 26 years, 7 months, and 21 days old. Herb Magitson had held the record for 41 years, winning the first ever Best Song Oscar at 29 years and 10 months old. He also became the first non-professional songwriter to win the Oscar and the first actor to do so. If there ever was a reason for professional songwriters in Hollywood to be nervous, Keith Carradine's win might have been at the top of the list. That turned out to be the only win for Nashville that night out of its five nominations. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was a big winner with five awards, taking the big five of Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Directing, and Best Adapted Screenplay. So this is the last time that Sammy Kahn's name is gonna be mentioned as a nominee at the Oscars. He amassed 26 nominations, all in the original song category, and that's a record that still stands and will be impossible to break. No one else even has a nomination count in the 20s, which shows how prolific and how good Kahn's songs were. Kahn pretty much stopped writing songs after 1975 though he was asked to translate some lyrics for the English-language version of the Japanese anime version of The Wizard of Oz in 1982. Sammy Kahn died in 1993 of heart failure as inarguably the greatest and most influential movie songwriter in history. You could even say he was one of the greatest songwriters, period, and it's sad that his name isn't well-known alongside Irving Berlin and Cole Porter. The nomination for Do You Know Where You're Going To was the first and last nomination for Jerry Goffin and Michael Masser, but they would start a new chapter together in the late 1980s with Whitney Houston. All of the songs they wrote for her were top ten hits, many of them reaching number one. Two of the best were Saving All My Love For You and Greatest Love Of All. Fred Ebb and John Kander probably didn't mind much that they lost the Oscar to Keith Carradine. At the time of the Academy Awards, they were celebrating the success of their new musical on Broadway about murderous singing women in the 1920s, called Chicago. The show would become the second-longest-running Broadway musical, thanks to the healthy 1996 revival. Chicago was a pretty big hit at the time, but couldn't get past the rave reviews for A Chorus Line, which featured songs by three-time Oscar winner Marvin Hamlisch. Both Chicago and A Chorus Line will get movie adaptations, and both will feature an original song vying for an Oscar nomination. Well, I hope that maybe winning the Oscar affected your personal and professional life positively. Well, it didn't affect it negatively.
2: Um, um, uh, you know, I was I was on, on sort of some sort of an A list uh, in terms of party invitations for about six months. That was fun. Um. But, you know, it, it's, it's an award for, you know, and I had, obviously, there was visibility from that, um, uh, you know, so so a lot more people knew who I was after that moment than before. Um, so that was helpful, you know. But, it, again, it was an award for, uh, I like to say, it, it was not an acting award. It was a songwriting award. Although people will say, no, 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 it was both because it, it was your performance of that song on screen right. that made it work. Yeah. So uh, I I have to sort of giggle and give in and say, well, okay, I guess that's true on some level, but, but again, it's, it's, it's an award for songwriting and and I'm proud of it. And, uh, and uh, I feel it's a, it's a, it's a bona fide for me as a, as a songwriter that I have that recognition. Um, uh, but, you know, and, and, and it, it made me a, a genuine one hit wonder, you know, I mean, that song uh, won the Oscar and uh, went into the top 10 on the billboard charts, you know? um might have gone higher might might have made it to number 1 but for the fact that there were actually two single recordings of it there was the one that I had done for the motion picture soundtrack for ABC records but uh, you know when they were putting that soundtrack together they didn't they didn't think there was a single on the soundtrack so they had no intention of releasing a single david geffen saw the movie um uh, at a screening in new york he called me up and invited me to make a record and uh That was one of those classic phone calls where I answered the phone and he said, it was David Geffen. I said, yeah, right. Sure. Who is this really? And he said, no, 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 no. it's David. And he, I said, oh, wow. Okay. He said, you want to make a record? I said, sure. So, you know, we went in and, and cut that song and, um, among others you know i had a lot of songs and my first album on asylum was all of my own material and i'm easy was among the songs that we recorded so there were now two recordings of it and of course david geffen recognized the the, the power of that song and that was before it won the oscar um and he planned to release it as a single so when it won the oscar um, the single, the first, first single that came out was on asylum and then ABC records followed up with their single. So now what they had two 45s out there of the same song, two different recordings of the same song by the same artist. Uh, and, and so billboard had no way of, you know, the, the, the keeping track of, you know, which song was selling where. And, uh, you know, as a result, uh, there was a lot of confusion about, uh, about the song's status on the charts because it's all about record sales. So you have sales on ABC and you have sales of asylum and between the two of them, I'm sure it was well over 500,000 records, but if you divide it in half, n- neither, neither one of those single entities sold over 500,000 records. So I didn't even get a gold record out of it.
1: Well, but the royalty checks, I'm sure are really good.
2: But yeah, well, I mean, songwriting, you know, the publishing is what uh, is what, uh, what one wants to retain. And, uh, and uh yeah i've uh you know it's it's it didn't make me rich but but it's uh it it has uh you know over the years it uh you know it it, it has trickled in it's been it's been it hasn't been meaningless it's been meaningful but you know
1: were you ever asked to write some more original music for the movies after well, i've done a lot
2: of i've done a lot of songwriting for the movies over the years and and, and uh um, I wrote a song for a film I did uh, with an Icelandic director, Friedrich Thor Friedrichsen, and I wrote a song for that film called uh, um, um, uh, Northern Light. And uh, and I actually recorded that in Reykjavik with uh, with a band up there, with some members of Sigaros actually contributed to that recording. So that's in that film. I wrote a song for a film I did that Dirk Benedict wrote and directed called Cahoots. <clears throat> we recorded that. It became part of the end soundtrack of that film. Um, you know, so yeah, I've... I've done a bunch of it over the years. Yeah,
1: it's been uh, interesting to to see how your career has progressed since Nashville. Obviously, um, you know you had the two Tony nominations, so you you went back to the theater. You had some great TV show appearances, Deadwood and Dexter and The Big Bang Theory. Um, what do you? How do you think the the Oscar had an influence on the acting jobs you were offered?
2: well i mean i think i think being in that film uh you know uh, obviously it gave me a certain amount of visibility you know sure um the the film itself nashville itself was not a massive commercial hit it wasn't it wasn't uh, that kind of a a, a commercial success it was an artistic and a critical success and uh and in fact uh, you know it was nominated for i don't i can't remember how many oscars but uh, the only win was for songwriting was for me And, and and no one else on the film won an Oscar. Um, that was, that was a disappointment that night, you know? Um, and, uh, but in terms of my visibility of having, for having performed that role in that film, um, it definitely, uh, you know, it led to more work. I mean, work breeds work as they say in this business. And, uh, and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of opportunities over the years and, uh, and the opportunities that came to me right during that period uh you know were terrific and no doubt uh, partly a result of uh, of of my having been in that movie. Where do you keep your Oscar? It's right here in the living room sitting on a shelf
1: you know traditional so you you see it all the time how how what memories come to you when you you just glancing at it walking by it even well,
2: you know what? It's funny. I don't think about it that much. I mean, uh, you know, I think about it when I'm asked. Um, but, uh, um, apart from that, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's part of my tapestry, man. What can I say?
1: Well, Keith, it's been, um, great hearing these stories about, about your life, writing music and, and, um, winning the Oscar. Thank you so much for taking the time to share it. And, um, Best of luck to you moving forward with everything that's going on in your life. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Nice talking with you. And a big thanks to everyone for listening to today's episode. We'll find out who becomes the next Academy Award-winning songwriter on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. History just might be made again. As always, thanks so much for singing along with me. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song podcast
0: is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.